who have been a part of the Inquirer weekend at some point or another, and if you're not familiar with what that is, real quickly, that's a way of putting it, our new members class. Those of you who have been a part of the Inquirer weekend at some point or another have heard me say something along these lines, that when it comes to the finished work of Christ, that is what will help you sleep at night. Now, not because it's boring, but because it settles things down. It gives our souls rest. Now, I've been thinking about that just uh, as of late, just, just a bit. Not just the finished work of Christ, but the future work of Christ. If the finished work of Christ is what gives us rest, the future work of Christ is what gives us hope. You see, the finished work of Christ allows us to sleep at night. It is finished. The future work of Christ enables us then to get up again the next day with hope. Because we know one way or another what's coming. The finished work of Christ gives rest. The future work of Christ brings hope. And by hope, by hope I do not mean wishes. And I do not mean idle wants but rather something more along the lines of a renewed, true vision of what is to come and grabbing hold of it. Real hope. If you have a Bible with you now, I'd ask you to turn to Revelation 21. Now, I can really help you out here in terms of how to find that one. Um, If you have hit the concordance or the maps, you have gone too far. All right, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and we are almost at the very end of it. Revelation 21, uh, at the end of this, kind of at the end, we're going to, Lord willing, going to have a little addendum to it next week, but pretty much at the end of this little mini-series, these post-Easter reflections. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. 
Lord, these are your words. These are the words that you gave to the Apostle John uh, there as he was in exile in the late first century on an island that we know as Patmos. This vision that you gave to him that you wanted to be written down, recorded, and then you wanted us to hear it all these years later such that you have preserved it and brought us here to this place this morning. We ask that you would now meet us and press into our hearts the truths, the realities of which you are speaking, of which John was seeing and hearing. We need to have our, our hopes set right. So much of our days go so far askew because our hopes are set so wrong. Our expectations and anticipations set in all the wrong things and all the wrong ways. And so we ask that you would set our hearts anew aright with real hope upon the one hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The spread of the Christian gospel through the Roman Empire, its rapid spread, is an historical reality. You don't have to be a Christian to agree with that. That's just an historical reality that ancient, any ancient historian has to subscribe to. Connected to that, to the rapid spread of the Christian gospel through the Roman Empire in those early centuries, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, was quoted as writing this, connected to that spread. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Connected to that spread and, and grappling with why it was that the Christian gospel was going as forward as fast and as quickly and taking root as it was, Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Tertullian is, is writing a little bit after this period of time in which uh, the Apostle John is writing, again, late first century, probably around 95 A.D., John is a very old man as he's writing these words that we have just read here from Revelation 21. It's the time frame, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, of the emperor Domitian and widespread persecution that was breaking forward. He, he wanted to squash this movement, be done with it. And so Christians, by the score were being dragged out of their homes and having their homes confiscated. Can you imagine? Even worse, many others were dragged into an arena where they were torn apart by wild beasts. This happened, folks. Some were taken alive and impaled on stakes before everyone to see as their entertainment drenched in pitch, and lit ablaze. And the record show, witnesses said that they could hear these people praying in the arena, praying for their persecutors, that the Lord would have mercy on them, and, 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 singing hymns to Jesus. And it raised some questions in the minds of those witnesses. What's going on here? Why are they responding? 
this way? How could they respond this way? What is it that they have? Do you know what it was that they had? You know what it was? This is part of Tertullian's, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is part of the explanation as to why the church spread as rapidly and the gospel took root as rapidly and so beautifully, powerfully as, as it did. Because what they had was not an idle dead hope, but a living hope. A living hope. In the one of whom John is writing in Revelation 21. God used such words to enable such people to respond in such ways. A living hope. It's the post-Easter message. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The tomb is empty. The stone rolled away. He has come forth from the grave. Christ is risen. And over the last few weeks we've been talking about the consequences, the logical consequences of that reality, that historical time and space reality that Jesus came forth from the tomb. One being, two weeks ago we talked about, well then that has to mean that He is in fact who He said He is. That was one thing. But there's another, and we talked about this last week, that, that it means as a consequence, well, it, it must mean then that he really has done what he said he would do. And now thirdly, bringing this little mini-series to somewhat of a close, one last thing. Christ is risen, the tomb is empty. It has to mean then, by inference, not only is he who he said he is, and he has done what he said he would do, but he will do. He will do what He said He would do. Now, what did He say He would do? What is it that we should expect as a consequence of Easter? He tells us, Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we can look forward to. That's the Easter Reality. This is an astonishing, wondrous promise from the living God and His risen Christ. And we are called to behold this. That is to say, not ignore it, certainly not that, but not, and this is what I, I fear we too often do, not to just give it a glance and then look away, but to behold it, to see it, to look into it, to take it in and to hold on to it. Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. We are called to behold that, to take it in and to hold to it. Now, what does that look like? What does that mean? What might that mean? There's two things I want us to consider for the next few minutes. That is, what it is that we're to behold and how it is we're to behold it. These two points, and it's there in your outline. It's, it's this. The nature of this work, this future work of Christ, and the extent of the work. The nature of the work and the extent of the work. So first, the, the, the nature of the work, the newness of this work. How deep does it go? That's what I, where I'm going with this. How, how deep does this, this go? Well, there's two things to see here, and one is there's a continuity, a continuity to what Jesus is going to do, but yet also a, a blessed discontinuity as well. 
Now, what I mean by that is, is this. When you think in terms of the old heaven and the old earth and the new heaven and the new earth, despite what some will have you to believe, what Jesus is not speaking of here is a coming annihilation of the heavens and the earth. That is not what he's talking about. An obliteration, a control-alt-delete, restart, or ex another ex nihilo creation as it was in Genesis 1. That is not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about an utter annihilation of everything, but an utter radical transformation of everything, such that the old gives way to the new in the heavens and the earth. When you look at the full scope of the biblical themes, beginning even with the prophets, for instance, Isaiah 65, keep your thumb there in Revelation 21, because I, Revelation is hardly the first time we read of something like this in the Bible. 700 years before, Isaiah is writing things like this. Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new... Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Does that sound like something we just... Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And it goes on from there for the next few verses along those same lines. So do you see this in the prophets. You hear it from Paul. Romans 8, for instance. Paul writes of creation groaning but that groaning is going to be giving way to a healing. The patterns, you've got the prophets, if you like alliteration, you've got the prophets, you've got Paul, and you've got the pattern of Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus' own resurrection is described as being akin to the first fruits. Now, we don't know anything about first fruits, but first fruits in the ancient world, what that has to do with is, and if you farm, then maybe you wouldn't know anything about something about this, but it means... It was the, the first crop. It was the first crop that was to be produced in the growing season. And the first fruits were two things. One, a guarantee of what was to come, that there was a, another crop coming. But it was also a preview of what was coming. It's showing you what is coming. Not just that it is coming, but what is coming. Jesus' resurrection, his resurrection body, that was a body... He could eat. He could be seen. He could be touched. His, his resurrection was meant to, our, we are meant to understand that as something as a first fruits of our own and the whole work of the transformation and renewal of the whole cosmos. A continuity to it. Our resurrection being tied to his, our future being tied and indicated to something akin to by his where we are going to be on this earth, ruling with Him, this earth, radically remade. So there's continuity, but let me go further and say, thank God there will be a discontinuity too. Because it's going to be different. The same, but different. I mean, look at what's absent. And John tells us, verse 1, the last few clause, the sea was no more. Now, those of you who have a, a timeshare down at, you know, it's okay. That's not, that's, it's a metaphor. 
This is a, a Hebrew Jewish metaphor. The sea represented chaos and rebellion and evil. And what the Lord is saying is that's gone. The sea is gone in that sense. Not just that, but suffering. Look down at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No sea, no suffering, no sin. Skip down to verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, let's be clear, there is a component of warning there, to be sure. But not just that. Encouragement. Comfort. He's telling us that everything that would otherwise threaten the peace and, sh and harmony, shalom of the city, will be gone. No sea, no suffering, no sin. It will all be changed. Changed. The same, but different. Those things absent. Ah, but what's present? What's present? Did you catch that? Verses 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This beautiful and astonishing image of the city of God, the, city, the New Jerusalem coming down as like a bride in the procession of a wedding. Coming. Coming and, and this being the, the final climactic fulfillment of that wonderful, long-anticipated Emmanuel promise. God with us. Of intimacy and communion, but now permanence. No more tent dwelling. No more phases. It's done. It's a city. It's a wedding. It's final and fulfilled. God with us. You see, this is beautiful, wondrous, amazing combination of both what we need in terms of continuity and discontinuity at the same time. At the same time. And what do we do with this as in terms of application? Two things. This life is not all that there is. Let's be clear. Obviously, that's an implication here. And... You know, breaking out of that, all wrongs, think with me, what he's telling us here is all wrongs are going to be made right. All wrongs that ever have been are finally, that just seem to kind of have been swept under the rug. All wrongs are finally going to be made right. Justice will be done. But not just that, not just all wrongs being made right, but all the longings and desires of our hearts being truly met and fulfilled. All wrongs being made right and all the God-given longings and desires of our hearts being fully and finally met. This life is not all that there is and praise God for that. Because that's what's coming. He's coming and bringing this about. 
pushing further, okay, then what does that mean by implication? It means we dare not, we don't have to, and we must not put our hope in the things of the present. They'll give way. That's why we have so often the mourning and the crying and the pain, because everything's giving way, but not in, not in that day to come. And I will also add one more thing. When we think about the pain and the mourning and the crying, the future is going to make up for the past. It's going to eclipse it. The future is going to make up for our past. So hang on. That's what he's telling us. So hang on. Don't you give up. Hang on. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. By implication, it means he's going to do what he said he would do. What is it that he said he would do? Make all things new. Now that's the newness of the work. That's the depth of it. One other point, and that is the scope of it, the extent of it. How far does it go? You said it goes deep, but how wide does it go? Well, to steal a phrase, Isaac Watts, joy to the world, as far as the curse is found, that's how far. And you know how far that is? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Genesis 3 tells us, and your own experience tells us, and our middle schoolers, in fact, based on what Steve and, and Dale and Amy discovered this morning, could tell you, it goes everywhere. That's how far the curse is found. You think in terms of the ruptures that occurred with the fall, where there was, between us and God, where there was intimacy, it gave way to fear and hiding. In terms of the peace that was there within the human heart, Adam and Eve, it gave way to guilt and shame. You think in terms of relationally, horizontally, between us. Harmony gave way to hiding and blame shifting. And then just in terms of the creation itself, that which was meant to be our friend over which we were to have careful dominion, it becomes hostile and given to decay. How far is the curse found? Everywhere. But we are also promised that a day is coming when everything that disintegrated becomes brought back together and integrated as a whole again. So let me retrace that again, okay? Those four things. With God, the Alpha and the Omega is taking the initiative. This is not, by the way, you noticed uh, Revelation 21, this is not old Babylon. Um, not Babel and Babel. This is not old Babel reaching up. This is Jerusalem coming down. This is his doing, his initiative, his peace. Within ourselves, the former things are passing away. All the grief, all the sorrow, all the crying, all the pain. Between us, did you notice that it's an image of a city? It's a corporate reality of a group of people, a body of people who love each other and love their Savior, bound together as one, with one heart, one voice. And nature? Hello. Old heaven, old earth, giving way to new heaven, new earth, where 
flourishing and fruition takes on a scope beyond our wildest imagination. The groaning finally give way, giving way to rejoicing. The point being, all that came apart at the fall is brought back together. How far does it go? What is the scope? What is the extent? Nothing is excluded. Nothing is left out. Now you say, you don't, look, but look, everywhere I look, in the news, in my neighborhood, at work, at play, it's just so broken. That's right, and that's what he has in mind. All of it. All of it. And in the meantime, hang on. In the meantime, we're to be a city on a hill, living in such a way that the watching world cannot help but be drawn to us. In the meantime, we are to be kingdom agents of the king, through whom and in whom he is doing his work. In the meantime, hang on. But yet you say, but it's not just what I see out there. It's what I see in here. It's not just the, the bentness and the brokenness that I see when I look to my left and my right. It's when I look within. It's when I look in the mirror. That's right. That's right. And he has that in mind as well. It has wisely been spoken of that what Jesus is bringing about even now is substantial healing. Real with substance, even, even now. Such that even now, in, in this life, in your heart, down in the, in the depths and through the depths of your being, He will work with what Paul describes in, in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I got it. In fits, yes, and in starts, and not perfectly, and not all at once, and sometimes in ways you can't see, but others around you can. And he's bringing that, and even now, and will one day in the full. So, my friends, hang on. Hang on. Christ is risen. Do that again. Christ is risen. He's going to do what he said he would do. What is it that he said he would do? Make all things new. New. All things. End with this. We are hope-driven creatures. And by that I mean this. The way we handle and respond to the stuff going on right now in the present is inevitably tied to what our view is of the future and what's to come. Are you with me? We are hope-driven creatures. That's how we function deeply, all of us. How we respond to things in the present is tied inexorably to how we view things in the future. Let me give you two examples, one negative. I had a rough experience one year when I was a... Uh, student in, in college. It was a roommate experience. This guy and I were just, we were not, okay, I don't know what was going on. Anyway, it was not a good year. It was tough. It was miserable. I'm sure he would say the same of me, but I'm just talking about him, okay? So, but you know what helped me? This light bulb moment when I got to the second semester, and I realized there was a date in which I was out of there. That semester was done. 
I was done being his roommate. I'm out. You can do a lot of things when you know what's coming, right? That's your negative example. Here's your positive example. The way we look forward to just the most simple things, holidays, right? Big celebrations, graduations, weddings, family gatherings, you know, all those kinds of things. We, or, or just, some, for some of you, just a meal, just lunch today. You're looking forward to it, right? And it's an interesting phrase that we would use, isn't it? Look forward. And sometimes those things that we are looking forward to have a way of buoying, lifting, and carrying us forward because of what we're looking forward to. So here's my question. What are you looking forward to? That's the question before the house this morning. What is our view? What is our view of the future? Where is our hope? There are two basic paradigms. One is to say, when you die, you rot. This is all that there is. One day the sun's going to flame out, and there will be no one to remember you care about you, or reflect on your brilliant legacy. And you know what? If you hold to that consistently, that'll change your, the flow of your day. Now, most people hold to that at one level and then stick their head in the sand and pretend like they're not living that way. That's another to- topic. There's another way to live. The Christian view, what John is writing of here, of the risen Jesus, of resurrection reality, of future hope, of real hope, of the, of the, of the promise, and the certainty. Because we know He is raised, that it is an historical reality. The tomb is empty, and as a consequence of Christ being risen, He will do what He said He's going to do, and He has said that He is going to make all things new. Is that how you see the future? What's your hope? What's your hope? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You commanded this to be written because these words are faithful and true. And we need to have them written. We need to read them. We need to read them again and again and again that we would hear and heed them, that we would have the right hope of a radical transformation coming, a renewal that will touch everything, including even us. And and all being tied to and grounded in and secured by the empty tomb. And with that we know all this is true that which has happened, and that which is coming. And we ask that you would help us, with all of that in mind, to live with a hope that is not grounded in the present, that will betray us in its futility. But rather, Lord, help us to live with a hope that is set in the future, because that is going to be fulfilled. And that is the hope we need. In your name we pray. Amen.